today uh, is Nehemiah's leading of a prayer of confession um, and also of a reminder of all that God has done for the people of Israel. Hear these words. You gave them kingdoms and peoples and assigned to them every side. They took possession of the land of King Sihon of Heshbon and the land of King Og of Bashan. You multiplied their descendants as the stars of heaven. You brought them into the land that you had told their ancestors to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land. Before them, you subdued the Canaanites who inhabited the land. You also handed over to them their kings and the neighboring peoples to do as they wished. They captured fortified cities and productive land and took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, excavated cisterns, vineyards, olive orchards, and a great many fruit trees. They ate until they were satisfied and grew fat and dedicated themselves in your great goodness. But they were disobedient, rebelled against you, and turned their back on your instruction. They killed your prophets who had warned them so that they might return to you. They held you in great contempt. Therefore, you handed them over to the power of their enemies who made them suffer. But when they cried out to you in their suffering, you heard from heaven. Because you are merciful, you gave them saviors who saved them from the power of their enemies. But after they had rest from this, they again started doing evil against you. So you gave them over to the power of their enemies who ruled over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven and rescued them many times because of your great mercy. You also warned them to return to your instruction, but they acted arrogantly and didn't obey your commands. They sinned against your judgments, even though life comes by keeping them. They turned a stubborn shoulder, became headstrong, and wouldn't obey. You were patient with them for many years and warned them by your spirit through the prophets, but they wouldn't listen. So you handed them over to the neighboring peoples. In your great mercy, however, you didn't make an end of them. Neither did you forsake them, for you are a merciful and compassionate God. Now, our God, great and mighty and awesome God, you are the one who faithfully keeps the covenant. Don't treat lightly all of the hardship that has come upon us, upon our kings, our officials, our priests, our prophets, our ancestors, and all your people from the time of the kings of Assyria until today. You have been just in all that has happened to us. You have acted faithfully and we have done wrong. Our kings, our officials, our priests, and our ancestors haven't kept your instruction. They haven't heeded your commandments and the warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom, surrounded by the great goodness that you gave to them, even in the wide and rich land that you gave them, they didn't serve you or turn from their wicked works. So now, today, we are slaves, slaves in the land that you gave to our ancestors to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, its produce, prophets, the kings whom you have placed over us because of our sins. They have power over our bodies and do as they please with our livestock. We are in great distress. Because of all this, we are making a firm agreement in writing with the names of our officials, our Levites, and our priests on the seal. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us pray. Let the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen.
this is the second Sunday of Easter. We have 50 days to celebrate the resurrection in the life of the church before the season of Pentecost. That's literally, Pentecost meant 50 days after Passover. Um, And so we have 50 days for this great celebration, for energetic and lively and holy worship, for wearing white uh, is the color of the Easter season. It is a time of great celebration. And yet I was discussing with my pastor colleagues and some friends this week on a call, and we were talking, we were talking about why is it that every time right after Easter, it feels like a letdown. Now granted, this was a call I was on um, with uh, pastors, there were supposed to be 10 in our group and four were there because six were on vacation. But, um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think maybe it feels a bit like a letdown uh, just based on that reality. And I think one is just the reality of, hey, Holy Week is, is a busy, busy time in the life of the church. We have way more to do than we usually have to do. And in fact, uh, we've made Lent into a season where as, as much as like we try to take personal spiritual disciplines and stuff, it, there's, there's more to do during those 40 days of Lent. We, we take on disciplines, we, we fast from things, and, and there's a kind of spiritual emphasis during it. So we learn, I think, that we can't always be in just a crazy go mode, right? And then there's naturally a little bit of, after, the, after the high holy celebration of Easter, there sometimes feels like a little bit of a, lent, of a letdown. In fact, sometimes in some churches today is called Low Sunday. Um, I'm thankful that y'all are here today and it doesn't seem quite as low as it possibly could be on this Sunday. Other times people have uh, jokingly referred to it as Youth Pastor Sunday because that's who preaches. Um, so, um, <laughs> but, but that happens a lot of times in the life of the church. I think also, though, we, are, we find ourselves a little bit trapped between two different calendars uh, because we live the life in the church of the liturgical calendar. And in the liturgical calendar, like, you, you know, we sing that song, the 12 days of Christmas. That's not about the 12 days leading up to Christmas. It actually starts on Christmas, and we have 12 days of Christmas before Epiphany during that holy season. So we should be in celebration mode. But you know that the Sunday after Christmas is also sort of a letdown type of time. And the Sunday after Easter, in that same way, I don't think the church does it up for the 50 days of Easter. I mean, this should be like, I mean, according, we should be in celebration mode like an old Jewish wedding that went for like a week or something, right? Like it should be, I mean, you know, we should be going home having Easter ham again today or something like that. And so, so, so we want to be in that celebration mode of the liturgical calendar. And yet we find ourselves in sort of what becomes wind down mode as spring comes. Uh, Because realistically, a lot of us, a lot of our culture lives on school year calendar. And even if you don't have kids in school, or even if you're in year-round school, or or even if you're long past school, uh, we kind of have like Memorial Day to Labor Day as these markers of like, don't plan a lot during that time. And when I was in youth ministry and things, we'd make sure we ended things before Mother's Day because we knew that after that, no kid was going to come. And and, and that was just the the way that things operated. It, It was the mode that we kind of lived in. And so we're used to gearing up for the fall and getting ready and and, and getting programming ready. So in August, we kind of gear up for that fall start. And then we gear up again for a January uh, start of a second semester. It's just kind of how our life rhythms work. And frankly, the Easter season, especially when it's late, doesn't fall good into our calendar. So so that's kind of how we operate a little bit. 
I think it's okay if there's a natural letdown of energy. I'm not going to chide you today uh, for, for not just lifting up your hands and jumping up and down during the entire worship service in resurrection joy. I think it's okay for a little bit of a natural letdown. But the people of Israel throughout their history, and then especially in this period of exile, also dealt with, with a different type of letdown. We come to this passage, and we're, we're going through the Bible year this year as a church, and so we come to this passage in Nehemiah, and Ezra and Nehemiah are these books in the Bible that are not studied often in the life of our churches. And this is a period of Israel's history uh, where we have gone from Israel entering into the promised land, them having the period of the judges, uh, going into the period of the monarchy with names like David and Solomon, who we all know, um, and, then, and then a period of kingship for two or three hundred years, wherein kings were good and bad and indifferent, um, but mostly bad, and, and leading them to eventually what became the exile. And we hear that word exile, and for a lot of us, that is like the cutoff for where we understand Old Testament history. The issue, though, is that the exile started in the year 587 B.C., And so there were almost 600 years before the time of Jesus coming and that exile. Now, uh, if any of you were raised Catholic or you have Catholic family or relatives, uh, the apocryphal works actually fill in a lot of that time between, uh, between the exile and between Jesus coming. Um, and so, so our Catholic or Orthodox brothers and sisters um, actually might have a little bit better understanding of the period of history. The practice of Hanukkah actually comes during that period and comes from the book of Maccabees. And so, so they have a little bit better understanding maybe than we do as, as Protestant folks about that period. But here's what happens, right? Judah in 587 gets overtaken by Babylon, attacked from the southeast, and the temple is completely destroyed during that period. And we have some biblical texts from that period of exile. Some of the prophets especially are speaking into that. But Ezra and Nehemiah are some of the latest books we have about this return from exile. And we read in those books about three different characters. We read about Zerubbabel, which is just fun to say. And Zerubbabel was responsible for helping build back the temple when they came back to Israel from Babylon and then from Persia. So Zerubbabel helps build the temple. Ezra comes in. Ezra is a priestly figure. And as a priest, he recalls people into the covenant that they made with God, into the Torah relationship that they already had with the God of Israel. And then Nehemiah comes along, and Nehemiah was actually a government official in Persia. I mean, he was kind of big, big business in Persia and senses a call to go back and actually build up the, the walls around the old city of Jerusalem to fortify it and to make it once again um, the holy city of God. And so that's what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah's entire book, it sounds strange to us today, is about building walls and gates. Um, But it's actually a really inspiring thing because Nehemiah is going back to fortify and to build up, to build up Israel again. So this is where we find ourselves in Nehemiah 9. That building has already occurred. And what Nehemiah recognizes in line with Ezra is that the people need not just a physical renewal of the land and of the buildings, but what they really need is a spiritual renewal. What they really need is a new heart. And that's where we enter into the story in Nehemiah 9. And in fact, if you started at the beginning of Nehemiah 9, it would actually start as a retelling of the entire story of creation. 
So go from God's faithfulness to Israel all the way back to creation, take you through to the promise with Abraham. And where we picked up that story in verse 22 today is actually about the conquest. So it's about Israel entering into the promised land. Doesn't even talk about Joshua's name, but this was during Joshua. And it's about um, God's faithfulness from this possession of the promised land and conquest all the way up to the return from exile. So we hear about the conquest and Joshua. We hear about God's faithfulness through the time of Judges. And, and there's that back and forth that goes on between the people uh, receiving help from God, them getting the help from God by getting a judge, them forgetting everything that God had told them. Most often, it happens in the form of building up idols and worshiping the other gods that were there. God being upset with them, so turning them over uh, to those people and, and kind of forgetting them, the judge or the king not being faithful, and then Israel confessing again, repenting, and getting back into good relationship with, again, with God again, only for that cycle to repeat itself. And ultimately, ultimately what that cycle becomes, we read in verse 30 when it says, God, you were patient with them for many years and warned them by your spirit through the prophets, but, and there's a lot of buts in this series, but they wouldn't listen. So you handed them over to the neighboring peoples. And that really is the author talking about the exile. Assyria, Assyria conquering the northern tribes of Israel 150 years before this, and now Jerusalem and Judah getting conquered in 587. Friends, if you wrote out your personal history with God, I wonder if it would have a two steps forward, one step back type of journey. I know that mine would, and not just in the times where I describe uh, maybe my teenage journey with God and relationship with God, but also I think my daily journey now, it feels like I climb towards things that are hills or mountaintops where I can see out and, and, and see what God is doing in God's hand in my life, and then sometimes it's like there's a letdown, uh, a one step back in that journey. It seems like Every community of faith, not just the people of Israel, not just individuals, has this as well. I think churches follow this cycle sometimes where it seems like things are going really well in the life of a church. There's, there's good growth that goes on. There's uh, discipleship happening. There's, there's mission and serving out in the world and doing incredible things. And then sometimes there's a step back that happens, right? Maybe a global pandemic comes for two years and, um, and or th something like that, for instance, right? And, and it makes it feel like the church moves two steps forward, one step back. And, and, and this happens in communities of faith. So now, so now, as the people of God recall God's story with them, they remember this. They remember that our great and mighty awesome God, you are the one who faithfully keeps the covenant. You are the one who faithfully, who faithfully keeps the covenant. And then in the next verse, they confess this. You have been just in all that has happened to us. You have acted faithfully, and we have done wrong. You have acted faithfully and we have done wrong. This describes a pattern that we find in scripture called confession and repentance. Now those words often get lumped together to try to mean the same thing. But when we confess, right, and we've, we've used that word confession in worship a lot, whenever we confess, it's us saying, us admitting verbally, right, what we have done wrong. 
right? Our relationship with God needs that practice of confession. That's why we confess every time before we come to this table. It's because we acknowledge that we aren't worthy to come before God's table, and yet God receives us anyway. So we confess our sin. Every relationship that you have that's worth anything relies upon a practice of confession, right? Wherein you can admit that you have messed up and done something wrong. Anyone here who has been married for more than two days knows that the confession is necessary in order to sustain a relationship. But confession alone is not enough. Because there's also something called repentance. Repentance literally means turning around, doing an about face, right? The, in, in scripture, that, that's the language that we hear. Repentance means taking action on the words that you said, I'm sorry for, right? We know that words without action are worthless. In the same way, confession without repentance is dead. Friends, I want you to hear this today. We honor God's faithfulness with our fidelity. We honor God's faithfulness with our fidelity. That is a lot of the message of the Old Testament all the way through. And that's what Ezra and Nehemiah are saying to us today. We honor God's faithfulness to us with our fidelity. So what do the people do once they recognize that they have this pattern of infidelity towards God? What do they do? Well, verse 38 says this, Because of all this, we are making a firm agreement in writing with the names of our officials, our Levites, and our priests on the seal. And then in chapter 10, there is a thrilling description of all the people who sign it. I didn't read you chapter 10 today because it's boring. But... Um, but that's literally what, what they do. They say, because, because we recognize that we have gone astray from the covenant, we got to come back and sign this thing over again. Now, friends, we renew our covenants in the Christian tradition and in worship all of the time. Sometimes people will come and they'll say, hey, can we have a private baptism? Can you just baptize someone in our family and do that? Um, you know, kind of do like a Saturday service or something. It helps our family's going to be in town and things like that. And, and, and our response as pastors is to say that the baptism is not just for this baby or this person or for your family in that case. This baptism is for all of us. And it's not just so we see a cute kid in front of us get water poured on them to see what happens, right? That's not, that's not why we're doing it. Baptism is a reminder about God's covenant love towards us. It's a chance for us to recommit in our relationships with God. I mean, every time we come to the waters of baptism or we come and we hear people confirm their faith, we ask these questions. On behalf of the whole church, I ask you, the pastor says, do you renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness, reject the evil powers of this world, and repent of your sin? Right? That's a reminder of the covenant that we make with God? Do you accept the freedom God gives you to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever form they present themselves? And then do you confess Jesus Christ as your Savior, put your whole trust in his grace, and promise to serve him as your Lord in union with the church, which Christ has opened to people of all ages, nations, and races? Every time we ask those questions of the baptismal candidate or the people answering for them, we are reaffirming our faith together. We also commit ourselves to the person being baptized and to the work of the church. When after they are joined 
After they are joined into the life of the church, we respond together. We renew our covenant. We literally say, we renew our covenant faithfully. Faithfully to participate in the ministries of the church by our prayers, our presence, our gifts, our service, and our witness. We we renew our covenant all of the time in worship. In the same way, if you go to a wedding, if you go to a wedding, it is a reminder every time of a wedding vow if you've made one of those in your life. It's a reminder that it's not just when you were starry-eyed, gazing, gazing into um, your new beloved's eyes on that day. It's a reminder that 10 years later, 30 years later, 50 years later, those words that you say at that altar still hold true. It's a reminder that in that two steps forward, one step back journey of life, that those words still hold true. My wife and I, We love repeating those wedding vows, those traditional ones, to each other. But we also use those words that we said when we we put these rings on each other's finger. When we said, I give you this ring as a symbol of my vow. And with all that I am and all that I have, I honor you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Those are words that are not just words. They are far more. They're renewals of covenant. So every time I say those words, when I'm standing before a couple who is getting married, I'm thinking about my own wedding, sorry. Like, you know, it's, 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 I'll admit it, that's okay. But like, I'm thinking about those commitments that I have made in my own life every single time. Friends, we need the renewal that comes of a covenant in the ebb and flow of life. We need that renewal. So I invite you in these Easter days to reflect on the incredible faithfulness of God. That incredible faithfulness of God in your life, that incredible faithfulness of God that brings life in places that seem dead. That is the business that Jesus is up to. He keeps bringing life everywhere, all of the time. And as you, pers- as you ponder your story with God, I invite you to renew your commitment to God. To so be reminded that we honor God's faithfulness with our fidelity hint that doesn't mean you're going to get it perfect the reason why we have covenant renewals is because you're going to need to do it lots and lots of times right like you won't get it perfect no one will I won't but the reason why we commit ourselves and we have these practices in scripture that give it that that remind us the reason why you're here or you're worshiping with us online today is in a sense to once again renew that covenant life with God That's what we do every time we come to the table. We renew our covenant relationship with God. We confess, we repent, we remember those places where we have fallen short, growing deeper and deeper in love with God and in service to our neighbor. Let us pray. Holy God, thank you so much that you have been faithful to us, that you are faithful to us. And we are grateful for the opportunity we have to be faithful in turn to you. Lord, we recognize that you are always faithful, that you are always bringing life, and yet we are not. We fall short. We mess up. We we play around with death-dealing things too much. But yet, Lord, you always welcome us back. So, Lord, I ask that today we would be those type of people who pledge our fidelity once again to you, who commit our lives to the work that you are doing 
for your kingdom's sake. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.